Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. When Janair Girardo suspected her husband was cheating, she secretly recorded him and heard the proof he was having an affair. Why do they get to be happy? And why do I have to suffer? I just love him so much, I can't take it. And then Janair began recording herself, revealing how and why she was about to kill two people. Well, more breaking news now from Delaware. Radnor police say Janair Garrido ambushed the 33-year-old. One of the big questions any mental health professional struggles with is, isn't everybody who commits murder mentally ill? To which most of us would say no, not necessarily. From Podcast One, I'm Barbara Schroeder, writer-director of Netflix's Evil Genius, introducing Bad Bad Thing. The shocking story that made headlines around the world. Subscribe to Bad Bad Thing at Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you get your podcasts. He turned me into a monster because he doesn't know anything about honesty. I am so very excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Allform. It's a brand new brand that makes premium modular furniture, and it is customized to you. I've had such a great experience with them. They're making the best sofas in the game, and uh, I can't wait to tell you about mine. We designed it online. Pick the pick the fabric, pick the wood that goes with it for the base, uh, pick the picture the layout that we needed, and it was easy to assemble. It was great. For starters, it's one of the easiest ways you can customize a sofa using premium materials, and it has a fraction of the cost. It was very affordable. You can pick your fabric, as I said, and the color of the legs, the sofa size, whether it's armchair, love seats, all the way up to eight-seat sectional. That's what I got. So there's something for everyone. And you can always start small and buy more seats later on. It all goes together. All-form sofas are also delivered directly to your home. It comes in a box. It is easy to assemble. It could take weeks or months for some furniture to arrive. No, 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 not with all form. And in the past, you've needed somebody else to assemble. Nope, you can do it all yourself. And if getting a sofa without trying it in a store sounds a little risky, you do not need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That is more than three months. If you don't love it, they will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They even have a warranty that lasts literally forever. Allform will even send you a free swatch kit so you can see all the different colors and fabrics they offer to see what will work best for your lifestyle. And so to find your perfect sofa, check out Allform, A-L-L-F-O-R-M, allform.com slash Drew. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners. Wow. At allform.com slash Drew. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you all being here and supporting us, supporting the people who support the pod as well, keeping the winds in the sail of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Uh, do check us out on After Dark, uh, and if you want a daily stream, we're doing a lot of interesting stuff there. We've certainly been covering COVID every day at drdrew.tv, doing streams and trying to introduce interesting people. And now that uh, it seems like discourse is opening up, um, we're starting to have interesting guests with interesting ideas and trying to evaluate in retrospect where we think, what things were right and what things were wrong in this um, pandemic. It's, uh, again, drdrew.tv. Everything's over at drdrew.com if you want to find uh, the other podcast there as well. Uh, Gary, your mom's house, uh, I'm always stunned at who the fans are of your mom's house, but uh, they come from far and wide. It's a uh, it's an eclectic group. It's a, it's a But it's sort of a it, – it, it, I, I don't know how to define it. It's like an, it's a thing of our time. Like, where did this come from? This it's a it's a it's a movement. It's, it's, it's a movement. Like, it's I, like the whack pack. Well, it's, so you're, they're everywhere. It, it is Stern esque. I agree. And it, and it's um, 
I'm just so grateful to be a part of it, number one. But uh, I was looking at the – we have these uh, cups for the rational recovery, these coffee cups. And there's an iconography on that cup that I'm just so proud of. I think it's so funny. Uh, and we're trying to come up with some similar stuff for uh, other cups. But really, it's it's all it's all harkening back to uh, 1940s uh, Lenin um, propaganda. And just with me and Christina on these cups, it's pretty funny. My guest today is Dr. Susan Berry. Uh, the book is Coming to Our Senses, A Boy Who Learned to See, A Girl Who Learned to Hear, and How We All Discover the World. This, again, is looking at the... Neuroscience, uh, uh, how our brains process raw material into meaning. I'm fascinated by this topic. You can follow Dr. Barry at StereoSue. Is that one word, Sue? StereoSue, yeah. yep. S-U-E. Uh, and also at StereoSue for a Twitter handle. She is a emeritus professor of biology at Mount Holyoke College, a PhD from Princeton, author of many scientific studies on brain and brain cells, neuroplasticity, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, are you in the Pioneer Valley right now? No, actually, right now I'm in Arlington, Massachusetts, which is near Boston, um, because during the pandemic, we moved out here to help take care of our granddaughter Uh, while her parents work from their basement offices. Interesting. So, yeah, I spent uh, many long hours wandering the uh, campus there at Mount Holyoke College when I was an undergraduate at Amherst. Uh, and uh, it's probably one of the most beautiful campuses on earth. Uh, I was always jealous of that. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, and uh, and always a strong biology department uh, and history department too, as I think about it, right? That's been two of the sort of standout departments at Mount Holyoke. Am I correct? Yep. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Mount Holyoke always been strong in the sciences. Uh, oh, for sure. Uh, and I'm thinking of the history professor that wrote the uh, book about the founding fathers, like the oh called? Joe Ellis. Ellis, Joe Ellis, exactly. And uh, I actually interviewed him a couple of times. I, I know he got had a little bit of controversy, but I, I just yes, found him to be. A, but I still thought he's a great guy and wrote great books. You know, it's so let's let's put some stuff aside and, and look at the quality. Stop the ad hominem stuff. Haven't we had enough of that in this pandemic? Um, so let's get into this conversation. Um, frame the book for me and without telling us too much so people still want to read it, of course. Um, what what motivated the book and what we can learn from the book, let's say, to start. Okay, so two things motivated the book. The first was that I underwent a pretty dramatic change in my vision when um, I was 48 years old. And the change in my vision, which was from basically seeing the world as fairly flat and only with one eye to seeing it as three-dimensional with lots of space because I gained binocular vision and the ability to see the world with two eyes, it, it just brought me so much joy. And so I began to wonder, what would it be like if you had a more extreme um, situation? So I went from seeing with one eye to seeing with two, and that brought me great joy. What would happen if you went from being blind to being able to see? Can I can I ask or, first about your personal experience? So did you sure. have did you have uh, a, a muscular problem in the eye that was causing an underdevelopment of the fovea or something? It's not a muscular problem; it's a coordination problem. Yeah. I had crossed eyes, yeah. um, esotropia, or it's also called strabismus. Right, and um, I had surgeries on my eyes that made them look pretty much straight. So mm-hmm. I didn't look cross-eyed all the time. But the surgery didn't change the way that I saw. Mm-hmm. I still saw with one eye and then turned in and suppressed the input from the other. Right. And then I went through a, a process of optometric vision therapy uh-huh. with a developmental bi- um, optometrist. 
And that's when I learned how to coordinate my eyes and do something that most people learn within the first six months of life. Interesting. And that is how to point the two eyes at the same place in space at the same time. Did you have to use special lenses that you were sort of, you know what I mean? They, sometimes when there's intranuclear ophthalmoplegia, they have sort of ways of making one eye hazier and the, that kind of stuff. No, I didn't do anything like that because my two uh, my two eyes actually both had fairly good acuity and fairly balanced acuity. Mm. So what the exercises were, were exercises that actually provided me with feedback to know where each eye was pointing. And, and, and if- then that feedback, and this, this involved very simple devices like beads on a string. With that feedback, I was then able to learn how to point the two eyes at the same place in space at the same time. They must have been so excited, the fact that you had good vision in both eyes, that you were a perfect candidate for this stuff, which doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes you lose that vision, and, and which is fantastic. I'm wondering, was there a moment where you crossed into binocular vision, like like an aha moment, or did it sort of all of a sudden one day you realized you were there? It, there was definitely an aha moment. And it happened after a vision therapy session. I went out to my car and to drive home. And I, you know, got in the driver's seat and I looked at the steering wheel and oh my gosh, the steering wheel was floating in front of the dashboard. <laughs> and there was this palpable volume of space between the steering wheel and the dashboard. Yeah. Now I always knew the steering wheel was in front of the dashboard. For one thing, I could reach out and touch the various things. For another thing, your view of the steering wheel blocks your view of part of the dashboard, but I had never seen that space. I had never seen the space between the steering wheel and the dashboard, and that was overwhelming. And I closed one eye, and that percept went away. Now the steering wheel looked sort of flush with the um, dashboard as it normally looked. I opened my eyes, and there was a steering wheel floating in, in, you know, in front of the dashboard again. And I decided that the sun was setting at that moment. And I decided, oh, you know what? There must be some weird thing going on with the way the sun rays are coming <laughs> in. And that's why I'm having this illusion because stereo vision, the ability to use the two eyes to see in 3D, there had been this theory, it's still in existence actually, that there was a critical period in very early life yep. for the development of stereo vision. Yeah. And if you didn't develop it then, you never could. And guess what? I know exactly what day this was that uh, I had this first aha experience because it was the day after my 48th birthday. Amazing. And did, were you able to drive home or was the disruption so problematic you had to shut one eye driving? No, I was able to drive home. I was able to drive home. At that point, I didn't see in stereo all the time. And I didn't see everything in stereo like I do now. Right. Uh, so... I think as I was driving home, I sort of reverted back to my normal way of of seeing. Well, you you in the way you sort of casually described your experience, there was actually a lot packed into that, and I'd like to unpack it a little bit. First of all, this phenomenon of the human central nervous system of the gestalt or the aha that's a, that's a feature of how our brain moves forward, isn't it? And, and it do is. we do we know what that is? I. Don't exactly know what that aha is, but I know some things that happen as a result of it. And one is that you have this experience and it's novel. And you have this experience and in this case, it was very joyful. 
And that causes the release of various neuromodulators mm-hmm. in your brain, mm-hmm. um, the basal forebrain, mm-hmm. from the brain, and from certain areas of the brain. And that helps to uh, confirm, it, it helps to um, strengthen that new way of seeing. And so every time I saw in 3D and I got that jolt of childlike glee, there's no other way to describe it. It was like this childlike glee. That just was like another jolt of neuromodulators into my visual cortex saying, hey, this is good. Let's keep this going. Right. And, and I, I love the way you describe that. Uh, for those of you, just to, again, unpack even again, there's a lot in what you say that that the medial forebrain is the nucleus accumbens. You may have heard that in the addictive sort of uh, context. And it really is the do it again part of the brain. Good job. Do it again. And it's often associated with a flood of endorphins, which is a different part of the brain, which is also not only do it again, but I like that. So the liking and the wanting both get activated. And it does sound an awful like the way people describe some of the feelings of aha associated with hallucinogenic experiences. It actually makes me wonder – I mean, maybe that's seeing things differently, but it also makes me wonder if hallucinogens are just evoking that and nothing else. Just this novelty, aha, do that again kind of feeling, giving it a sense of novelty and newness and extraordinariness. But in reality, because when I talk to people that have been through hallucinogenic experience, I'm always like, well, what, what is different? What is it you're seeing different? Oh, I can't describe it. Well, maybe it just was the feeling of that good and <laughs> nothing else. You know – um, I don't dabble in hallucinogens or anything what? like that. Why not? Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but um, Aldous Huxley wrote a book called The Doors of Perception. Yeah. And in it, he describes his experience on mescal, was it? Mescaline. Mescaline. And my, my golly, some of the descriptions he described of like looking at table legs or the folds in his pants or flowers. Those were very similar to the experiences I had Isn't when I first started to see those things in 3D. Isn't that interesting? I was very surprised. Yeah, and, and you used the word when you were describing your experience. You, you used the word, I knew it. I had a knowing, but I hadn't seen. Knowing and right. seeing as two distinctly different experiences, which is already fascinating to me. Right, right, right. It would be like... Well, because I was a college professor and in neurobiology, I would teach my students about stereopsis, the ability to see in 3D using the two eyes together. And I would have them test their own stereopsis in the lab and such like that. And I felt like I I know what I'm missing. I know what I'm missing because I know all the mechanics behind it or I know a lot of mechanics behind it. And then I discovered that, no, my knowledge of stereopsis and my experience of it did not necessarily overlap. They were two very different things. You are literally Mary Mary in the room without red. That's right. I had some philosophers contact me uh, about uh, exactly that. Oh, my God. I mean, you are literally that person. Because right. the, 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 the sort of most evolved philosophical construct of that, of that uh, idea is that Mary is a neuroscientist. And knows everything about red, but has never seen red. And then one day she sees red. What is the difference? That's right. Oh, that's you are literally Mary. That's wild. That's right. That is wild. What and did they say? What they, did they have some? Did did it? Did that create some new insight for anybody? Well, I don't know what it did for the philosophers. I did write about this to Dr. Oliver Sack, 
Yeah. Back at the very end of 2004, about three years after my vision began to change, because I had met him nine years earlier. Uh. And he had said, can you imagine what it's like to see in 3D? A very perceptive question. And I had said, yes, for all the reasons I just told you, because I understood it from a sort of mechanistic physiological point of view. And so I wrote him a letter and I said, I was completely wrong. And then I went on for nine single space pages about the change in my vision. And um, you should, is that in the book? That is in the book, Fixing My Gaze, the first book I wrote. Is it the, the um, letters in there? No, the letter is not in there, but my just uh, some of the description of it is. But Oliver Sacks wrote about uh, me and that letter in two places. First in The New Yorker in June 2006 with the story called Stereo Stew. Stereo Stew? Okay, that's where the Stereo, stereo Stew came Stu. from. He okay. gave me the nickname Stereo Stew. Got it. He didn't come up with that. He did. Whereas he would say Stereo Stew. <laughs> and, and then... Um, in his book, The Mind's Eye, Stereo Stew is one of the chapters in that book. But but I, I didn't expect to go here, but but you understand that we're, we're now sort of flirting with the idea of what is experience, right? I mean, that's yeah. sort of the zone we're getting into here. And philosophically, that's what the Mary uh, paradigm is all about. And, and do you have any special insights about experience or pet theories or things you keep close to the chest because of your experience? And, and let me define while Sue's thinking about this, it is, you know, we're talking about knowing versus experiencing, which people get very confused about, particularly these days in the day of the internet, when they think they know stuff, but because they haven't actually experienced the material, they don't, they don't have it the same way. It's why doctors don't just read about diseases in a book. They have to go see it. It's the difference between riding a bike and reading about riding a bike, essentially. And you, it's a different thing when it's experienced, and yet we have no really good language for that. You know, what, what is it? We, 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 in the experiential learning world, they talk about it, but for the average lexicon of the average person, it's a distinctly, profoundly different experience. And we think we talk about it more in terms of, you know, um, automatic motor activity and training our body to do certain things. But it really, our brain, ourself, is having a very wholly different experience when it's riding a bike than it's when it's so-called, to use Stereo Sue's word, knowing about riding a bike. Now I'll let you talk. So I think you've just brought up some really important points. And that's actually where my new book, Coming to Our Senses, comes from, is what is the experience of first learning to see? as an adult or as an adolescent, as opposed to the experience of an infant? What is the experience of first learning to hear as an adolescent or an adult? Is, can we imagine it if all of our lives we've had the ability to see and hear? And um, I think we can uh, uh, gain a better and better understanding of that experience but I think the experience itself, you have to experience yeah. to, to really absorb. You have to wait. So you, wait let's, you, 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 can, you have to experience to know, but you can't know to experience. Right, right. And, you know, when I first began to see in 3D, I was so overjoyed. And I thought, you know, there's, it, I must just be a kook. <laughs> uh, I just, you know, I just, I'm having so much fun with this. This is 
it's not like I went from blind to being able to see. Yeah. I always could, let's say, walk into my kitchen and know where things were and, um, you know, do things with my sight. I was a, you know, primarily a sighted person. Why is this so joyful? And was it always joyful or did you sometimes have down periods? I'll tell you I my, had, I'm telling my I reason had, for that in a minute, but, but periods were like, why am I depressed about, why am I suddenly depressed? Anything like that happening? A couple things. One is, oh, now I understand why certain things like driving are so easier for other people and so much harder for me. And a certain resentment, you know, that mm. comes from that. Mm-hmm. Of, oh, you know, I had, I, I had, I had a lot of trouble learning to read in school, for example, mm. and nobody but my mother understood that that had to do with my vision. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so a little bit resentment there. But that was sort of um, softened by the fact that um, I had a lot of support through my mother and, and some other people and um, and that there were worse things, way worse things that can happen to people. Of course. You know, I would remind myself yeah, yeah, of course. that. Um, the other downside to it was because I could see more space, I developed a real fear of heights. Oh, wow. Which before I'd been somewhat indifferent to. And I can remember shortly after I was able to see in 3D, um, uh, my family went to Hawaii. And we went to, uh, we were walking along, you know, uh, a beautiful trail. And, and it sort of opened up into a cliff. And my husband and kids went, what I thought was too close to the edge of the cliff. And I just panicked. Yeah. It was like, there was so much space. And you know, they could fall down that cliff and, um, um, wasn't that interesting? That's probably, so that was very frightening, but it's also very interesting because that's probably the source of fear of fear of heights, right? Which is the space, the space, the vastness. Vastness of space. Yeah. Yeah. Because one thing, I think when we talk about experience, can you experience somebody else's experience? Yeah. One way I tried to describe um, first seeing a 3D is to imagine going up to the top of a of a tall, tall building, you know, a skyscraper, and then looking down. And isn't there initially that slight moment of disorientation? Yes. Um, that that comes from that. I actually get dizzy. Well, that, I actually get dizziness. I actually whoa, feel like or I can't. Yeah. Like I can't brace yeah. myself. Yeah. And that was a little bit like what the experience for me was like just seeing in 3D because everything expanded, space inflated, things that were were a distance away were a greater distance away, that sort of thing. And so that that sort of butterflies in your stomach um, sense of uneasiness, where am I? That was an experience that I had um, you know, gaining 3D vision, especially if I was in an unfamiliar place. And so while I can't expect somebody who's always had stereo vision to have that experience, I can use the experience of being on top of a skyscraper to sort of um, give a sense of what that feeling was like. I, I, I will tell you from my perspective as a stereoscopic vision person, um, that sounds like an epiphenomenon. It's like, yeah, I need to, f- I need more. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, like, like, yeah, I get what you're talking about, but that doesn't get quite to the experience I'm looking for you to share with me. You know, you know what I mean? That's kind of yeah. that, yeah. which, which is, yeah. this is the ineffable quality of all this stuff. Um, right. Is it, before we get into, I want to get deeper into the sighted uh, subject or unsighted subject you learn to see. Um, 
because I, I wonder if it's the same guy I actually interviewed at one time. But but I have a first a question about this. You refer to hearing and seeing and learning these things and the developmental stages associated with it. I still remember, by the way, the the cats with the slits in the eyes and all that business. I'm sure you taught your students sure. that stuff. This was all yeah. where we developed the idea of developmental windows passing after which we couldn't come back to. Um, but it, I immediately thought to myself when you were talking about regaining sight and hearing, do you think the speech centers figure into this in some interesting way? Doesn't it feel kind of like speech is a a relative of all this? Because – Speech comes along at the same time in childhood. Speech is this also has sort of an ineffable quality to it when we're experiencing it. Uh, we can learn it, you know, systematically, and then all of a sudden we have it. You know what I mean? It kind of just way all of a sudden you had speech, you had vision, you had binocular vision. Am, am I on to anything there? Or is anybody thinking that way? Or I think in both cases. Certainly the glee, the glee and the, the delight in it. You know, my kids are delighted when they can point at things and name them. I think adults get the same thing when they learn language. Yeah, I I, I think that's true. I don't think it's a, it's a sudden jump, though. Mm. I think with both vision and hearing and speech, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it and repetition on the part of the, the infant and the small child true. learning that yeah, stuff. Yeah, true. We never know. We can't remember what it was like to be an infant. And so we can't, it, it seems to us like, yeah, I was just born and I could see. Yeah. I was just born and I could hear. Right. Because we don't have any memory of, of that period of time. But I have a little granddaughter now. She's now two and a half. And because of COVID, we spend all day with her every day. And um watching her, I realized how much work is going into learning vision, learning hearing, learning speech. And um, it's just something that we learned so well in those early years that it seems like, oh, it was spontaneous. And yeah. now it's so automatic and effortless. We don't even know what what we have. Do, do you think – I'm sorry to keep drilling on this because I, I still haven't gotten to the subjects out of your book. But, but do you think that – Intersubjective exchange is a key component of all this. Like it's you know they're going to the the adults who have consciousness and you know a self experience going naming and looking and pointing and showing. Is is there some exchange with other humans that if they were a feral child living out in the woods they would not get? Yes, I think that's particularly true with uh, something like speech. Yeah, of course. Um, that yeah. it's it's all about dialogue. Yeah. It's all about dialoguing with somebody else. Yeah, and um, and even before speech, just yeah. gestures or, or singing or or you know the physical hugging. It's it's all about interacting. We're a pretty we're a species that really needs to be with each other. Oh God, yes. Uh, okay, so let's get to the gentleman who to the story of the boy who learned to see. Liam. Okay. What happened to Liam? So Liam was um, born with several conditions that he was not entirely blind, but all he could see clearly were things that were about three inches from his nose. Mm. Anything further away than that was a blur. And he really had no concept of, of being able to see in, in vistas or distances or anything like that his visual problems uh, dealt, um, were a result of albinism 
Huh. Um, which means that, you know, you lack the pigment melanin, um, which can cause your skin to look very, very white and your hair to look white and your eyes usually to look blue. Um, and without the or, melanin. Or, or classically even pink. Yeah. Uh, without the melanin, um, what happens is that the eyes do not develop as normal. And some of the connections between the eye and the brain do not develop as normal. Right. Now, people with albinism then have reduced compromised vision. But um, Liam's vision was much more compromised than just what a person with albinism has. For some reason, and I don't think anyone knows why, he had a very, very, very high myopia. That is, he was tremendously nearsighted. So his acuity you know we measure acuity 2020 is supposed to be considered perfect acuity you can um his acuity was 22,000 meaning that you can see at 2,000 feet assuming you have 2020 acuity what he would need to be at 20 feet to see right um and even with glasses really thick lenses lenses so thick that they had to be held on by a cable you know the average earlobe kind of glasses didn't work for him. Wow. Even with glasses, his acuity was no better than 20 over 250, which is beyond legal blindness. So that's how uh, Liam spent his first 15 years. And he went to a regular school. Um, and on his mother's assistance, he was also given um, some training for the blind. And he learned to read Braille mm -hmm. and by blowing up the letters up to like 72 font size, which is very large, he learned to read print as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And um, when, he, when he was a little boy, the first pediatric ophthalmologist that his mother took him to uh, just was sort of very dismissive. Oh, he can't see anything. Uh, that's all there is to it. He's blind. Wow. And um, then his mom, Cindy, learned about another doctor in St. Louis. They lived in Missouri, uh, named uh, Lawrence Tyson, who uh, treated children with very severe vision problems. And she took Liam to see him. How old was he? He was two at, okay. the, at his first visit. Okay. And do you know that um, he hated the first ophthalmologist he saw in fact to the point where when that ophthalmologist had examined his eyes and you can imagine shining a bright light into the eyes of somebody with albinism who doesn't have the pigment to help absorb those stray light rays how appealing yes. that would be Oof. so he would after his appointments with that doctor sort of clam up and not talk to anyone but his mother um afterwards well, when he saw Dr. Tyson, Tyson, Dr. Tyson was so calm and comforting um, and didn't rush him in any way that after that first appointment, he said to his mom, can we go back and see Dr. T, the doctor who loves me? Mm. Anyway, um, now let's fast forward till Liam is now 15 years old. Dr. Tyson did some work, uh, you know, did some treatments of Liam before then, Liam had strabismus, that is the misaligned eyes, and he had surgery for that. But 
he still was, his vision was, if anything, getting worse and worse. And Cindy can remember watching Liam one day when she went to the school to pick him up, the high school, uh, and watching him talk to the other students. And they were all looking, you know, at, in each other's eyes. And Liam was looking down on the ground, holding his white cane. And uh, she thought, he's essentially blind. Uh -huh. And this is the way he'll be for the rest of his life. Uh -huh. But Dr. Tyson had another idea. And at about this time, uh, intraocular lenses, mm -hmm. which had been used for cataracts, a particular type was now available to use in the United States for people like Liam. The idea here was that you take an extra lens, a very, very powerful lens, and you put it in the eye in front of the natural lens. And so that powerful lens would correct his severe, severe nearsightedness. Glasses co correct nearsightedness, but when you're ne as nearsighted as Liam was, you need a lens. Um, the glasses have to be so... Telescopic. That they create other optical distortions. Mm -hmm. Putting the lens in the eye was much more effective. So he had a lens put into each eye in front of his natural lens. And now the light was focused much better on his retina. And he went from this 22,000 vision or acuity to 2040. Oh, wow. My goodness. Yeah. So near normal visual acuity mm. um, after basically being blind and, up until that time. And, and he was 15 years old. And I'm and so now he had to kind of catch up with terms of the connections with the occipital cortex, right? Absolutely. So oh the boy. occipital cortex is where the visual cortex is, which processes a lot of visual information. And what did Liam see? And I'll, I'll read you a quote from, from Liam. And this is what he said. I think of a line as the difference between co two colors, the point where two colors meet. So I should interject here that what Liam saw was lines everywhere. So to, to give people a little primer on how the retina works, because the retina sees, sees, sees transitions. That's mostly right. what it's picking up. Yeah. So the retina sees transitions between, let's say, dark and light. Yep. One texture and another. Anything. Any, anything from or one to another. One color and another. Yep. Exactly. One shade and another. Yep. What what the what all our sensory systems are really geared toward is not an absolute, like I want to see the absolute shade of gray, but they're geared toward contrast. And relative. There's their difference between one piece of the visual scene and the next. It's why we can be tricked. It's why we have optical illusions. Yeah. Yeah. And so what Liam saw now is he had, he saw lines everywhere. He saw these edges and boundaries between things everywhere. Mm. Well, so do we. But we instantly and effortlessly, it seems, know where those edges and lines and boundaries belong. You know, like, oh, this is a boundary of some object that's standing in front of everything else. Oh, those lines and boundaries are a shadow. You know, that kind of thing. Yes. We instantly am, are able to take these raw features and and make a whole out of it. Contextualize them. 
Yeah. Yeah. Then and, that's the job of the cortex. Yeah. And it's what Liam had to learn to do. And that's why he wrote, I think of a line as the difference between two colors. The point where two colors meet, these lines make up everything I see. A surface is pretty much consistent until you come across a line. If there's a line on a surface, it could mean a change in horizontal to vertical, like the corner of a room, or a change in depth, like the drop-off of a stair or curb, or it could also mean nothing important pertaining to the physical structure, like a crack between the floor tiles or sidewalk squares. And yet he couldn't he couldn't really tell the difference amongst these things. No. So yeah. if he was walking down the sidewalk and he saw a line, let's say he's looking, you know, forward and, and down, and he sees a line on the ground. Well, is that the division between two sidewalk blocks? Is it a crack in the sidewalk? Is it a shadow? In which case I can just walk over it without, you know, worrying about it? Or is it the step off of a curb? Yeah. Or is it a stair that's going up or a stair that's going down? Should I step over it? Should I step up? Should I step down? What was the learning process? How did he figure that? How did that just doing just more information coming to the cortex? Well, certainly, yes. Working, um, you know, uh, interacting with things. So walking about. He also had his cane. And he was, you know, proficient in using a cane the way blind people use canes. And so he could test with his cane. Gee, it looks like that might be a drop off of a curve. Mm. And he could also test with his cane to see if that was the case. Oh, is that a shadow or is that a stick I need to come uh, walk over? Well, he could kind of test it with his cane. So that was another way he could do it. But I think one of the strongest cues for him to understanding things was motion and mm. movement. Mm-hmm. And we normally think, I mean, you go to an eye doctor and you sit and without moving and you look often at targets like an eye chart, which are not moving. And then you, you know, you do, you uh, read the eye chart or whatever. So I think we often think about, oh, when you test vision, well, vision is all about sitting still and looking at things that are also still and figuring out what's out there. I think for Liam and for many people who um, acquire vision later in life, motion is the strongest cue. So how does that work? Let's say you see something moving. All of its parts are moving with it together. So it doesn't matter if part of it is colored blue and part of it's colored red or whatever. If it's moving of a piece, it's moving of a piece. And then you know that that whole thing that's moving um, is one object. Mm -hmm. And you can start putting that together. Oh, that's what that object looks like. Of course, you hear me speak quite a bit about blood sugar. And I'm not talking strictly about people with diabetes. I'm talking about all of us. Blood sugar figures very prominently into oxidative metabolism, lipid metabolism, and some of the oxidative damage, inflammatory damage that so many of us suffer from. I know myself have a significant issue with this. And let's be clear, you can never supplement your way out of this problem. Diet is extremely important. But look, uh, there are things you can do to help yourself out. And particularly given the addictive nature of sugar and carbohydrates, uh, we have a lot of swings in our blood sugar, and it's very difficult for us to stop and maintain healthy blood sugar levels. 
One of the ways, of course, is to reduce carbohydrates, that's sugars and starches, and keep more fat and protein coming in, more fiber. But uh, we all tend to cheek, so you can consider adding blood sugar breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's an easy supplement, easy to take, and it has several studies to back up its claims. The fact is it contains very commonly known elements that can help us with our blood sugar stability like biotin, chromium, cinnamon, and more. And uh, Bioptimizers, as always, does a lot of research on what's available out there in a supplement to do the work. It safely lowers blood sugar after meals and hopefully keeps keeps a lid on some of these fluctuations that can really do us damage. And for an exclusive offer for our listeners, just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/drew and you'll save 10% with code drdrew10 when you try blood sugar breakthrough. And if you use that link, that is bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/drew, your exclusive 10% discount will already be applied. Better help. So here we are. We're getting towards the end of COVID, but the aftermath is still with us. And as I predicted, the mental health consequences are substantial. Perhaps you're not completely depressed, but you're feeling off or your relationships are suffering, using too much substance or alcohol. If you're feeling anxious, struggling in your career, having trouble sleeping, visit betterhelp.com slash Drew. As I've said, I've referred patients. I've referred family. You just fill out a questionnaire to help BetterHelp assess your needs and match you with a professional licensed therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours via secure weekly video, phone, or even live chat sessions with your therapist. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great matches, so it's easy and free to change a counselors if you need a better fit. Online therapy is convenient. I think we're getting more used to this now, more affordable than in-person therapy, and not with some of the awkwardness of you know, not, it lowers the threshold for going ahead and taking care of yourself. You just, it's easier to access, and you don't have to go through some of the awkwardness. Our listeners get 10% off their first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash Drew. That is betterhelp.com slash Drew. Well, Public Rec, you've heard me talk about their pants. I live in them now. Uh, I've been in them all weekend. Uh, you know, some pants, the length is not right, the waist is frustrating, or the fabric is stiff, or, you know, bunches up. No, 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 not with Public Rack. you got to check them out. It is leisure wear, but it looks like everyday pants you could wear in the office, in a professional setting, or perhaps in leisure as well. They have their all-day, everyday pants. It's more stylish than sweatpants. Believe me, people will not know you're wearing sweatpants. And it's great for lounging, looking sharp. And uh, the size, waist inseam sizing, is perfect they they actually fit it to you and as i've said before the pockets were designed perfectly so things don't fall out there's enough room in the back pocket the front pockets they zipper it's all the things you want moisture wicking fabric you can wear them 24 7 and they will still look brand new comes in nine different colors i'll take them all everybody i love this pants plus they've got incredibly comfortable shorts t-shirts henleys polos hoodies jackets even golf gear and they've launched their women's line. So anyone listening to this can now enjoy Public Rec's game-changing fabric in their wardrobe. That's right. They're always in my rotation. And as the world is opening up, make sure you've got clothes that are as flexible as your life is. Public Rec rarely discounts. But right now, they have an exclusive offer just for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners. Go to Public Rec. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-R-E-C. PublicRec.com slash Drew to receive 10% off. You won't be sorry. That is publicrec.com slash Drew. Publicrec.com slash Drew for 10% off. And, and as a biologist, I'm, of course, you're aware that movement visually is a highly specialized phenomenon uh, neurologically. And, and some animals are, ext- are even 
reptiles are extraordinarily, maybe even exclusively tuned into movement. That's how they're that's able right. to. That's how they're able to shoot their tongue out and grab a fly a, a foot away because they see it. They see the movement with uh, an uncanny quality that, or maybe a hawk, a million, you know, thirty thousand feet in the air sees movement in ways that we don't. We don't even have that acuity with that. Right. 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 I used to raise frogs. And, you know, the frogs would only eat things that were moving. And if I ran out of crickets or mealworms to feed the frogs, I would feed them my dog's dog food. But I would have to dangle the dog food on a thread in front of them. There it is. Because if the dog food was just in a dish, they, if if they saw it, they didn't react to it. They didn't see it as food. Right. They didn't smell. Right. There was no smell, no taste, just movement. That's really interesting. I I interviewed a guy once who... um, I forget which podcast I was doing this on. It wasn't this one. Uh, but he had lost sight at about a year and a half. Something exploded in his face. So it's interesting. He had some development of vision evidently and was really totally blind his whole life. He became a blind skier. He became a blind athlete. He was doing all these things as a unsighted person. And uh, probably 10 years ago or so, an operation developed that could repair his – essentially, I think it was a corneal problem. They They could repair it. And he went for it, and it I don't want to say it ruined his life, but he wasn't exactly having the same gleeful joy that you experienced exactly he 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 in fact now his thing was he kind of knew what colors and edges and those things were he didn't describe that thing so much. he had trouble understanding the whole he he would the the what the whole is in his mind was would get distorted the the sort of one of the most unfortunate and also humorous sort of uh, stories he told me was he was in a Costco and he he pushed his wife out of the way because he thought a forklift was about to run into her when it turned out just to be a large man. He was just a big guy and he couldn't distinguish – his brain turned it into – uh, something other than what it was. It, cause, so the mind also does a great deal of interpreting uh, what it is we're supposed to be looking at. I guess that's a way of saying it. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're referring to Michael May. Yes. And the book about him is called Crashing Through that's by right. the person. That's right. And um, yes, that his story and Liam's story, they do point out that we have this incredible ability to synthesize the whole from seeing some of the parts. And how the heck do we do that? I mean, I think computer scientists who are looking at computer vision are one, you know, are, are dealing with this problem as well. For Liam, you know, if he especially looking at something in the distance, he might see a a patch of yellow and he'd think, is that a school bus? Right. Is that a truck? Right. Is that a building? Right. We instantly see that patch of yellow as part of whatever its wholeness was. Uh-huh. And how we're able to find the part, find the hole from the parts is, is really an incredible this, sort of miraculous this, skill. It is, this is the part where I start thinking about language again. You know what I mean? Because we hear these chirps coming out of our mouth and we – contextualize them and understand them and we have a holistic experience of the sentence not just the 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 words so, something about how the mind slash brain works is is in this yes and in fact 
Helen Keller talked about, you know, she was blind and deaf. And so communication was through a kind of um, a, a language, um, words were spelled into her fingers. Mm-hmm. And she would talk about how I don't, um, I don't think of, of it, of, of uh, the, the, the feelings as individual letters mm-hmm. any more than when you read a book. Right. You see every individual letter on the word and then go, oh, yeah, and now yeah. that word is cat. Yeah, yeah. And you just see the word. Yeah. And um, the same with music. I mean, you hear a melody, and many of us would have a very difficult time dissecting exactly what notes made up that melody. And yet we have no problem recognizing the melody or even singing the melody. And, and or playing it in, in a similar sort of you know, holistic kind of way. Right. Huh. You stop you stop thinking about the individual notes when you're playing it. Wild. And, and this speaks to the second person I describe in Coming to Our Senses. Her name is Zora, and she was profoundly deaf and received a cochlear implant when she was 12 years old. And um, this was the first time she ever really heard words through the cochlear implant. And um, she describes how there were times, you know, when you're um, listening to somebody speaking and, um, and she would be trying really, really hard and having a hard time understanding them. And then somehow if she relaxed and sort of took in the whole context, all of a sudden the words she were hearing, she was hearing made sense. Hmm. So, and Michael Koros, Koros in his book, Rebuilt, talks about the same phenomenon of um, being able to take in that whole, being able to take in the whole context. Mm. And then that helps you hear the individual parts. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a mystery as how we how we are able to do that. Yeah, I, whenever I sort of try to think about it, I don't know enough about the cortex and how it works, but there is that layer we have that our primate relatives don't have. That's sort of an integrative layer, and I always assume that somehow there's some dendritic growth, there's some synaptic connections, or something where all of a sudden that whole that parallel or, or linear connective amongst the columns is in. And that's just it. It's in now. And therefore, you get to perceive things differently. Yeah. So I don't know enough about that stuff. But, uh, Sue, I've got to kind of wrap things up. I've got about five minutes. Uh, it, what What else do you want people to know? Well, let's put it – I may think – I want people to read the book, obviously, and I'm going to repeat it. It's coming to our senses. Go get it at Amazon. But what did you get out of it, writing the book? One thing I learned from the book was um, the importance of self-awareness. And Meaning what I what? mean by now, I'm fascinated. What do you mean by okay? That? <laughs> what I mean by that is, when I first learned to see in 3D, that's when I learned this is the way I normally use my eyes. Gee, there's a better way for me to coordinate my eyes. Mm. I had to become very aware of how I was doing things, how I was taking in the world. Liam, who was practically blind and then was able to see, and Zora profoundly deaf and then able to hear, had to become very self-aware. They had to know how it is that they were taking in the world. I, I think you're talking more about 
uh, focus and concentration, aren't you? Focus and concentration, but also an awareness of how you normally take in the world. Okay. All right. Um, Awareness. Awareness. Okay, got it. Awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And then from that, learn to change it. Uh Uh-huh. So, um, for example, um, uh, SB, Cindy um, Bradford, was a um, man who gained vision at the age of 52. And uh, Richard Gregory wrote about him, Richard Gregory and Gene Wallace. And what they discovered was even after he gained vision, which he later, he didn't, he only survived two years afterwards. It was so traumatic that it actually probably led to his illness and death. Um, what he didn't do was switch from, from, the, from his habits as a blind person of understanding the world in, in great detail by touch to actually using his vision. What does it mean to use his vision? Well, we just automatically scan the world. We walk into a room, we automatically scan the room and look around it. Uh, we, somebody talks to us, we automatically look into their eyes to get an idea of not only who they are, but what they're feeling. We, we automatically do these things. Somebody like Liam had to figure out, I have to do those things too. I have to scan the world. I have to look far and near. If I want to understand people, I have to look at their faces. And so that's what I mean about this self-awareness. Well, it's an interesting model. Habitually. Right. It suggests an interesting model for change generally. Right. Yeah. And so, and there's so many things about say our psychological functioning, our interpersonal functioning, our personality functioning that is automatic and when you, you know, part of therapy is bringing to awareness in an intersubjective context some of these things we do and uh, using all kinds of subtle techniques to move things in a different direction. So right. it's very interesting. It's all, it's all, I mean, I feel like this is moving neuroscience forward. I hope so. It seems like it. Are you going back to the Pioneer Valley? Is that uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the books for you? Uh, yes. We still have our house. In fact, um, during COVID, um, my son and his wife moved into our house because they have, they live in a small apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And with the work that they do, they needed a lot more space. And so Perfect. Uh, well, we just sort of switched homes for a while. Perfect. And are you lecturing at Mount Holyoke or anywhere in the valley? I'm retired now from Mount Holyoke. And um, so occasionally I go in and give a lecture to a class. Yeah. But um no, I'm not. Um, I don't lecture at Mount Holyoke regularly anymore. I loved it, though, and I did it for many years. And fantastic school. Was your undergraduate at Princeton also? My undergraduate was at Wesleyan University. Wesleyan. Yeah. Well, listen, Sue. I appreciate the book, Stereo Sue. Uh, at Stereo Sue is where you follow Susan Berry. Also, website stereosue.com. dot uh, com. What do people find at the website? Just so we can uh, motivate people to go. Uh, right now, what is mostly on the website is information about my first book, Fixing My Gaze, um, information about vision therapy, the kind of therapy I had to learn to see in 3D, um, um, various uh, talks that I've given that are on the web, Great. that kind of thing. Outstanding. Well, keep it up. Don't stop here. There's more All work right. to be done. <laughs> and Thanks. we appreciate you joining us. Again, that book Thank is you very much. Coming to Our Senses, A Boy Who Learned to See, A Girl Who Learned to Hear, and How We All Discover the World. Go get it, and we'll see you next time. 
For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or Dr. Dr. Drew.com.